0: Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Frank, thank you so much for joining me on this week's Fraudology again.
1: It's great to be back. I enjoyed our last conversation. That was about two months ago, right? And
0: It kind of feels like two years, but yeah. <laughs>
1: years. A lot has changed, but yeah, I got a lot of great feedback. So I appreciate you having me on then and having me back on so we can talk about some other interesting things today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate it because not only were you willing to come back, but you were willing to come back and record on a Sunday. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah, that's probably the time when we we both have time right on weekends. So this is
0: true. I'm always like, oh, other people take weekends and don't work. Hmm, That's (laughs) interesting. (laughs) But you know, life of a fraud fighter, I think whether you're self employed or not, we're always kind of thinking about it because we're ingrained in what we love to do. It is. It is. Yeah. It's way more of a job than a passion or way more of a passion than a job. That's true. (laughs) So one of the reasons why I wanted to have you um, on and why not just because I love talking with you and I think uh, you have such an interesting perspective on the world of fraud as well, but you wrote an article last week that I thought really hit home. And I don't know if you saw this or not, but it was actually funny because I do try to keep up on your blog, but often it's on the weekends. Oh, I wonder what I missed from Frank. But one of my listeners sent it to me and said, I think I'm listening to your podcast too much. Because when I read this article, I thought of you and how much you talk about the importance Mm -hmm. of building ROI and fraud. And so that was how this particular article got on. And kind of reminded me of when my daughter says that she hears me in her head when I'm not around. Oh, I guess there's some speeches I say over and over and over again. But one of the reasons why I talk about this is because I know how challenging it is for fraud fighters in general, practitioners, whether it's for banks or merchants. Merchants are obviously what I know most, but banks and others to really get Budget. And I think it's way more than just budget. And I talked about this a little bit on my last week's podcast. I think it's also the respect and the demonstrating value and all of those other things that go into getting budget. I really liked the way you broke it down. So I'd love to first know kind of what inspired this article.
1: That's a good question. I think it was just living through the frustration myself, Mm. having worked for banks, but then having consulted with a lot of banks that needed technology and even I coming in as a paid consultant would oftentimes have a hard time getting them to spend the money. Yeah. Even though they paid me to tell them what they should do. So I kind of wrote it out of my own frustration, but I think the frustration of probably thousands and thousands of fraud analysts and investigators and technologists working in merchants and banks and lenders that are fighting that fight every day. I was like, well, let me just give voice to their frustrations in this article so I kind of wrote it up and based upon my experience
0: that was what I assumed but I thought it'd be good to you know I think for you and I both because Mm -hmm. we are in such a position of privilege to be able to speak to and on behalf of so many of the you know thousands of fraud fighters that can't necessarily always speak on the record or at conferences Mm -hmm. or in news articles or whatever we notice things, right? We start to notice patterns. And I think that's generally something I, same for me when I was a merchant and now I'm a consultant. And then even speaking with vendors as well, being we can, sometimes they can prove a math equation, but even then you're being compared to a marketing campaign that may bring in the same amount of dollars as you may save in fraud. Right. But that's more attractive because it means growth and all that. So. You provided a few examples in there. of It was almost lessons that we've learned over the last several years of times when fraud really got out of control, right? It's almost Mm -hmm. like a forest fire. It's almost like it started as a campfire and then spread out of proportion. I would love for you to just kind of share some of those specifics.
1: I always think of fraud as like a ghost that (laughs) nobody believes in until it scares them. And so nobody believes in fraud until they actually experience it. I was trying to think of examples where banks, lenders, or companies just really failed to invest in the future of what mm. the future losses were. So chip card is a really good example. Mm. From 2001 through 2015, here in the United States, the rest of the world was adopting a technology called chip card. and We mm. all use it now and it's just second nature. It's that chip. That's far more secure than the MagStrip. And the rest of the world adopted that technology and really counterfeiting of credit cards, about 80%, 99%. But here in the US, there's so many banks that have to make that investment. And there's so many merchants that need Mm -hmm. to make that investment. It was billions of dollars. So when you actually do the math, year over year, it would never pan out because it would cost billions of dollars to implement and the fraud savings would be less than the cost. Mm
0: -hmm. So the
1: U.S. kept delaying it and delaying it and delaying it. Meanwhile, as the other countries implemented that technology, the fraud in the U.S. started to double, triple, quadruple. And the business case really started to become apparent. If we were going to be the only country in the world that didn't invest in this, regardless if it made sense now, then in a few years we'd have unsustainable losses and credit cards would die. Mm -hmm. Couldn't have credit cards because the fraud would be too high. That was a Really big example. I think in 2015 we adopted those that October. technology. Yeah, October of 2015, and it cost a lot of money. It's now just being finalized. In fact, gas stations finally did it. But that was something where we delayed here in the U.S. for for years and years and years. We took billions and losses, and we were going to do it anyway. We should have done it back in 2001.
0: Right. So you were yeah. looking at the cost of all the losses between 2001 and 2015 as a lesson right. of you should have done it before. Absolutely. And yeah. what's interesting to me is I see a flip side of that. It, and it's just because of, you know, where I've lived in the fraud life cycle. Well, obviously that was important, but there were some card brands and some banks, especially after the 2013 data breaches of Target and Home Depot, that we're using that as a way of saying, hey, we're going to make you really safe and fraud's going to go down a lot once you get these chip cards. That's not going to happen next time. Well, actually, what they weren't saying is that it it was just going to get off of their balance sheets, right? (laughs) Unfortunately, and this isn't me saying, throwing banks under or anything. I mean, it's the, we could debate this for hours and we're not going to, who should own the liability and all that stuff. But that did bother me because I was seeing it as if there was a tsunami coming for the merchants that I worked with. And sure. at the time I was um, the in-house industry expert and program manager for the trade association, the merchant risk council. And I, in 2013, and especially in 2014, a big part of my job was speaking at a lot of events from MasterCard risk summit to, yeah. You know, the NCFTA with all of the law enforcement, et cetera, to really sound this alarm almost like yeah. a urologist and say, hey guys, if you don't pay attention to this, you think it's bad now? Look what happened in the UK. Look what happened in South Africa. Look what happened in these. And I had all the charts and all the graphs and all the things being, we need to be ready for this. And not everyone was. And so what I think of for Chip Card teaching a lesson in ROI it's actually the second half, the 2015 on when we saw card fraud double and triple yeah. in one year, two years in the CNP channels. So they went down in person. So I think both sides can learn from that momentous event, but in right. different ways.
1: Right. The Every investment you make in a technology doesn't eliminate fraud, it changes mm-hmm. fraud and pushes it. It's like the snake in the rug, right? You push down in one area and the snake's going to go somewhere else. So you always need to look at the counter mm. effect of any fraud investment. Where is it going to go? And I think you nailed it, Chris. It's CMP, and you mm-hmm. you didn't have to look very far. You just had to look at the UK and Canada, what they experienced. One of the interesting yeah. things about chip card is that Target became the poster child or the catalyst for chip cards. But yeah, they were the very first go back to 2001 when i was talking us should implement chip card they launched a the chip card back in 2001 or 2002 hmm. i had it i hmm. got it because i wanted to see how it worked so the very first chip card implementation was target really and they uh got rid of it
0: yeah uh, i know that they got was, rid of it which yeah. i've got a very interesting half of this other half yeah. of the story so please but yeah
1: yeah but they they were kind of they were always there, are the poster child of wow. We need to do chip card because of Target, but they were actually in ahead of the game way mm. before anybody else. They are proactive, but I think the CEO mixed it because it was taking too long at the point of sale.
0: Yes, so and that it. was a big that was a big deterrent as well for banks when they were making yeah. that decision. It was going to sure. take an extra. Yeah, it was less than five seconds, but it adds up when you've got lines of people. of people. Yep. Yeah. I didn't know that. So what's funny is, and I feel like I can share this now. This isn't anything that any NDA I might've been under is long expired, but I don't think I was at all in that, but they were a company that reached out to me in 2013 or 14 when I was in that role asking, Hey, are, what are private label cards doing about CHIP? And I made some introductions to them, to some other equally very large companies with large private label cards to have some discussions as well. So I didn't know the piece that they had had it already. I just remember them being one of the first private label that reached out to me. There were a few others that did later, but they, so they were thinking about it long before, but they didn't want to be the only ones. So they knew that Visa and MasterCard and, you know, Amex and Discover were going to do this rollout, but then they were like, well, what about us? And so I remember that very clearly. So that's why it was interesting to hear that, that they... That explains their hesitation, right? They're like, well, we did it once before and we, we were the only it. ones. <laughs>
1: so we got yeah, to do it did. again. And I got it right away too. I was, all right, chip cards in the US and it was them. Yep. Um,
0: very I can so relate to that. I think all fraud nerds can, right? We're fascinated mm-hmm. by new technology and want to see it and touch it. I got to see one of the first prototypes of the credit cards in Europe with the dynamic CVV or yeah. the CVV would change. I and mean, I don't actually know yeah. if those are in production or not but they were being discussed in the mid 2010s yeah mastercard right yeah they, yeah
1: they got the technology i just had have never seen one yeah. in, in action but they look super cool
0: yeah yeah it was really cool it was a little calculator in the back almost mm-hmm. like a calculator screen and after every time you use it it refreshes almost like an rsa key you know, that kind yeah. of thing. And I don't know if they ever were, but it was a prototype at a conference. And I geeked out over that. Oh, it's so cool. <laughs> Whereas most, most consumers would be like, eh. you I know, know. Yeah. This is, or this is going to be a pain because, you know, if I store a card with a merchant, then I'm going to have to change it every, whatever. Oh, but, oh you got
1: to keep pulling the card out. Mm-hmm, right? It's not yeah.
0: Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I do think that with tokenization, that would, but, we could go down so many rabbit holes. Another example that you used was that there was never a business case for mortgage fraud tools Mm. until it was too late.
1: This one was very personal to me because in 2004, me and my partner, Tim Grace, started a company called BasePoint Analytics. And we said, where's fraud today? And we actually ended up, he ended up getting a call from a mortgage lender, somebody he knew that worked as a underwriter at a mortgage lender. And they said, hey, we think there's fraud, but you guys should look at mortgage fraud. And we went and did an engagement with this lender, and we went in the room. We said, "Hey, you know, just all engagements. Like, what's your fraud experience today?" And they said, "We have one basis point of fraud loss, which is point thousand dollars a year, right? Yeah, zero 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 one mm-hmm. like, percent. Just so minute that you would never do anything with." And we said, "Well, give us the data. Let us tell you." And we got their data, and we found about a hundred basis points conservatively. So we thought it was like actually about 1% of all mortgage loans were fraud. It turns out it was far greater than that. But anyway, over the 2004 to 2009, we were gone. We went to mortgage lenders. We went to the rating agencies. We went to investment bankers and said, mortgage fraud is out of control. We have the data. We're seeing Mm -hmm. it. You got to put tools in. The rating agencies didn't believe us. They said our models were wrong. The Secondary market, same thing. And some lenders ended up agreeing with us and and purchased the solutions that we were offering. But it wasn't until 2009 that everything fell apart. The Mm. property market fell apart. And all of a sudden, everybody put the blame on fraud because nobody wanted to say they were at fault. So they said, well, how could we be at fault when it's a bunch of fraudsters, people lying about their income, about whatever their identity
0: had nothing to do with the incentive structure for all yeah, those mortgage nothing. brokers that had boats and yeah. lake houses and live in the high life yeah
1: <laughs> because nobody believed the fraud existed they'd never invested mm-hmm. and then the fraud perpetrated but then we know now that the fraud rate was actually probably 2 to 5%, right? It was 500 basis points and it, it created a financial crisis in the country it, yeah. it voted the markets internationally it was it was it was a huge deal and that's a Prime example of why you have to say, yes, we don't have fraud recognized now, but the data is telling us that Mm. it's there. We need to do something with it. That was a real personal one where I was extremely frustrated, you know, (laughs) during that process of being kind of kicked out of the room saying, and I wasn't the only one. I'm not, I would say it's personal.
0: No, no, but I get that.
1: There were thousands of people that worked for mortgage centers that were fraud analysts and underwriters who absolutely agreed and they had the same challenge. They wrote, they they whistled blue, they ever sang fraud's an issue.
0: I think Al Pascal at Breach Clarity, I think he has a similar origin story as well. I think if I remember correctly, he was on the mortgage Sure. mortgage side as an analyst and saw a lot of fraud and tried to do that too. Yeah, I feel like a lot of us get chicken little complex, right? Or at least right. we're treated chicken little within our company or our organizations because it's we're providing an inconvenient truth. I mean, you can think of so many different analogies, right? Just because I don't think I'm going to get a car accident when I go to the grocery store, doesn't mean I'm not going to put a seatbelt on, right? Just because I don't think that my house is going to catch on fire and God, I hope not. And I need to knock on some wood right now. I still have, you know, homeowner's insurance, right? So there are things like life insurance, health insurance, et cetera. But for some, well, I shouldn't say for some reason, but I just think fraud is one of those things that, it's almost kind of like your ghost analogy, right? I usually say that companies don't seem to care about fraud until they have their oh shit moment, but we all have our own way of phrasing it. But I do think it's yeah. good to look at these things. But when I'm thinking about tactically, when fraud fighter, a practitioner of some sort, no matter if they're in lending or banking or whatever, When they're going to their boss to say, hey, I'm starting to see this trend, you know, refund fraud is one of those things you and I have both been sounding the alarms about for over a year now. And I think just now I'm about to launch this workshop that I'm super excited about to be able to kind of democratize this information that I've been able to give to Clients that can afford the one-on-one, but being able to give it at a larger scale, because I do think the big one of the biggest problems is not understanding the problem, not understanding what it looks on your end and everything else. We've been watching the criminal conversations on Discord and Telegram and others, you and I both, and we've both yeah. shared, how is this not a bigger thing, right? How are these companies right. not doing it? And. I've sent several companies, hey, I just want to let you know, I saw this on this thing. Some of them will never reply to me. I mean, there's one in particular, they were all over Telegram the last few weeks with their gift cards being purchased. And it looks like they have ATO and it looks like they've just got a huge exposure and I reach out to someone blindly on LinkedIn. I tried to say, hey, I'm not trying to drum up business. I mean, sure, I'll help you if you want, but like, I'm just doing this as a public service. I can't see your house on fire across the street and have a fire hose and not offer to help and at least tell you your house is on fire. But I guess what I'm saying is when a fraud fighter is tactically asking their boss and trying to convey ROI, do you feel like sharing those examples is one piece of it, but then maybe backing it up with your own or Because then moving on to number three, we don't need real-time scores. I'm just curious, what are some practical and tactical advice that you have in that? Because as consultants, well, and you're not a consultant anymore, but you have been, we have to be really good at ROI and demonstrating it. So I wanted to have this conversation with you about what can we help people walk away with.
1: You got to do it with data. Mm -hmm. You have to have data. Fraud is a very emotional Topic mm. in any company. And like you said, when you're the fraud guy or girl, you are always thought to be the chicken little, right? Mm-hmm. But, and I get told this all the time it's when you're a hammer, you think everything's a nail. Oh, yeah. And, and you're a fraud fighter, you think everything's fraud, which isn't necessarily true. But anyway, I get told that all the time mm-hmm. because I'm always raising the warning flag. But here's how I get over that personally. And what I found that works is you start with data, you make it a statistical conversation. And with the types of fraud that more whether it's mortgage fraud or refund fraud, refund fraud is analogous to my mortgage fraud. What you're dealing with now is
0: yeah.
1: 100% what I was dealing with <laughs> and what others were.
0: Oh, especially what I was dealing with six months ago with a few proposals I had. And yeah. One of them went all the way up to a very famous last name to approve it. And they did approve it, but then it fell apart somewhere else. But I mean, it was just, it was a five month process to, I mean, the fraud person knew how big of a deal it was, but to help the fraud person explain it to their company. And there had to be significant amounts of losses before it got approved. I mean, just really bad.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So you're, Give it a year, and then all of a sudden it'll be—it'll be common knowledge, and yeah. everybody'll think they came up with it.
0: Oh, I'm already getting there. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah there's everybody a few vendors imagine. that are like,
0: we have the silver bullet, and it's like you don't even understand the problem if you think that's the silver bullet. But yeah, <laughs> uh,
1: fraud people capitalize on this billion-dollar fraud market. There's so many companies mm. that have never actually don't even understand fraud or founded, <laughs> you know, start companies, and actually don't know about it, but they end up making billions of dollars. Oh, I know. I want to see somebody that actually cashes in on it. So I hope you are able to. Oh, gosh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I am Anyways. a long way from that, Mark. But I, there, yeah, I, I'm i with you on that. You and I both learn about a lot of new technologies <laughs> where I'm sure you also are like, oh, huh. okay, well, if that's successful. But then sometimes they do get big accounts. You know, like, how did those people know what they were buying? But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But I do think that there are some successful products that have been created by former fraud fighters, but yeah. it's all about money and capital and VC and blah, 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 blah. But Absolutely. yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah. So I, well, where I was going with that was
1: data. And what you have to mm. be able to do is measure hidden fraud. When I say hidden mm. fraud, it's the fraud that's being counted as lost somewhere else besides yes. the fraud metrics. So in the case of mortgage fraud, for example, and then we mm. can talk about refund fraud after. Mortgage fraud was always there, but yeah. guess what? It was sitting in a certain bucket. It was called early payment default loans that default in the first six months. Someone would get the house and they just wouldn't pay. Right? Mm-hmm. They move in or they flip the house or they hit They hid the fraud and they just never paid. I think refund fraud. It's probably sitting in another bucket. Maybe non-received merchandise. It and is. Everybody's going, wow! Look at nobody's getting their merchandise, and it's okay. Yeah, that went up by a hundred percent. You're not yep. like actually that's all fraud because that is exactly
0: every, how my whole journey with this started
1: <laughs> find the hidden fraud such a good fraud. point yeah find the hidden fraud it net needs to be categorized as fraud non received mm-hmm. merchandise get your baseline from 5 years ago and look mm. at it today if it's up by 80% that increase is not because of UPS or FedEx right it really In a fish gen, it's probably somebody's manipulating the system. So find Mm -hmm. a baseline, how much it increased. And then it sells itself. That is your fraud. And now you have an ROI. It may not be in traditional third-party fraud, but it's going to be in that. And that's how you spend the money. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing about refund fraud that I think, and I'm sure you agree, but to me, I could care less about the ROI. If somebody is exploiting my brand, If somebody's stealing from my company, I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm going to pay for something or I'm going to invest in people or technology to stop it. I mean, why should your brand be abused by a fraudster? Why should you be on Telegram, all over Telegram? With your, your name, name are, there, that yeah. you are suckers. I mean, do you want to be a sucker? And not
0: just that, they're profiting off of your company while you're yeah. losing, right? I mean, yeah. they're not just stealing it and using it for their own purposes. They're stealing it and reselling it and then watering down the market. Mm-hmm. They're basically competing with you, but they're able to reduce their prices because there is no cost of goods for them. Right. Um, maybe you tell them,
1: maybe you tell these big companies, did you know this this guy, yeah. Noir, You guy you brought up, Yeah. Uh, Is making more than your CEO on your company? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that will get the CEO's attention.
0: So I've actually, I wrote that down as something I was going to mention. Brand is a big one, especially in the last few years. Mm -hmm. I feel like when you are measuring your ROI, I I absolutely agree with you. You need to start with the data. You have to understand your executives and your audience, what they respond to best. Do they respond best to pretty pictures of data? Do they respond best to anecdotal stories? But when you are sharing anecdotal stories, make sure that the data backs it up and that they're not getting distracted by this one-off fraud Mm -hmm. type that you tell. It's a fun story, but then they think that all fraud is that one story you told. But I do think that sharing with them, going on a journey and saying, hey, up until recently... This is how fraud presented itself. We've gotten really good at that with the investments we've made into transactional fraud analysis or loan reviews, KYC, et cetera. And now it's morphing, right? Just you said, it's never going to totally go away. It's going to go somewhere else. I, I don't usually use the snake analogy. I use a balloon. When you squeeze a balloon, the air still has to go somewhere else. Yep. Same kind of thing. And so this is where it's gone and then share with them. And the other thing I do is sometimes I... Use examples that have been headlines and say, you have a very similar problem as this company that made it in a headline. It used to be Target and Home Depot, though those were not related to e-commerce breaches or anything. It was more a cybersecurity issue with an HVAC company, but you don't ever want your name to be synonymous with fraud because consumers don't totally understand it. So they think when they hear that their brand was, or that their account was hacked on a website, they, I mean that drives me crazy because it's account takeover, but they question your brand's safety, right? They blame it on you. They don't, they're not going to think, oh, it's probably because I used the same no. password for every account. And it was really simple to guess. Right? They're going to blame you. They expect you to keep them safe. So it's a customer trust and brand. And it's a challenge because those are things you can't put numbers on, but you kind of can, you know, you can look at other companies and there's one in particular I'm thinking of that I was kind of personally involved with cuz they'd asked me to consult on a problem and then I really had a low I mean I really went low for them and they 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 really the CEO said no absolutely not And then a couple months later, or maybe just a month later, they were in headlines for that problem. Really, really bad one. You
1: need one of those envelopes that you seal and you give somebody (laughs) and says, open this in nine months. (laughs) I told you.
0: (laughs) Oh, if I had a nickel for every time I felt but I don't actually having that skill. I don't always like being able to know what the weather's going to be in this particular company or a psychic or whatever you want, whatever analogy you want to do. And I'm sure you're the same way, especially when you were a consultant and with the mortgage crisis, especially it's defeating. I have. Can be. Yeah, it can be for sure. Yeah. It's really challenging because you're trying to say, ah, wake
1: up. But yeah, so you gotta have thick skin in the fraud uh, game. You do. But I think you always know what I've learned is there anytime a budget's gonna get approved, it always goes to the finance guy (laughs) who's got a sign off on it. And 99.9% of the time he's gotta say, here's the money we're getting back. So Mm -hmm. you almost to get that last check the box you got to have the ROI. So you have to find a way. Yeah. Maybe it's, maybe there's a, maybe it's a dollar amount for brand loyalty, or maybe it's avoiding some compliance risk, or maybe it's reduction of Mm non-received purchase.
0: Well, actually, if we're comparing it to refund fraud, one that I've found recently and shared with people in the retailer group that I work with privately, but also this will be part of the workshop. I'm not trying to plug it. It just will be. I've actually gone through several. And, and one, just one example of what you're saying is reduction in call center volume, reduction in claims because the call center volumes have gone through the roof, whether it's through chat or through call. And that's there's a human cost to that. Not to mention all the technology that goes into it and the tickets and the da, 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 but being able to compare your call center volume to two years ago to now on these specific issues those are important metrics and then to ask the person who's in charge of customer service they know the dollar amount per call that it costs the company because that's part of their job right so just hey mm-hmm. just out of curiosity what dollar amount do you put per call. And how many calls have increased percentage or whatever metrics they have, and that's one way that you can put ROI on it. So yeah. I, I've found several others around the warehouse and other pieces that I'm not gonna give away all of them, but like that's I think that's a good example of looking, it's almost like you're looking in the couch cushions for quarters and pennies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> add them in there <laughs> and go add and them go. in, yeah, yeah. And I always struggle as a consultant i know ROI is so important and I always think I can probably save them more, but I try to give a conservative percentage because there are companies that overpromise and underdeliver and I never want to be one of them. But sometimes it shoots me in the foot because I I do my pricing sometimes based on that ROI piece and it's I estimated I would save them 20% and actually that process saved them 60. But I guess that's a good problem to have. It's I, very, I that's why word of mouth it's is very credible. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's my word better to have to credibility
1: than anything. I think. Yeah.
0: It's true. Yeah. I mean, you can't totally take credibility to the bank directly, but it does. <laughs> I'd like to cash in my credibility, please. Can I put that in my bank account? But yeah. there is definitely ancillary stuff and I'm very, very you know pleased with it. So I know that time-wise, we had one other big subject we were going to talk about. I think, honestly, I would just love to have you on regularly. So we'll talk about that. Yeah. I think we have a long list, but I'd love to just spend another minute on this, you know, we can save a bunch of money by doing that ourselves. I'm curious about was that an argument that you were suggesting fraud fighters, you know, use, or were you saying that's something that you've heard executives say, but really outside technology is going to be much better?
1: Yeah. I think every technology analytics, solution vendor company probably this is going to resonate with them having been in fraud technology myself for now 15 years yeah. or more than that actually 25 unfortunately or unfortunately <laughs> i get it i know every year
0: i'm like man does that, yeah, mean that old? Have,
1: a lot of times fraud departments want a tool they have they know the tool they want and they pitch that tool internally and then somebody in the company has a great idea, we can build that ourselves. Oh, right. And, and it derails the whole thing. And I've seen this happen time and time again. that's it's because a company wants to become a fraud technology company when they're a merchant or they're a bank or they're... Mm. They don't understand that these technology companies have sometimes invested millions of dollars in infrastructure to be able to do this type of mm-hmm. thing. Very specifically, it's their core competency. So what will happen is the internal modeling team or IT team says, "Oh, you guys want a case manager or something to manage cases or you want this particular scoring solution or this IP address this identity check. We can go out and buy the data ourselves, we'll build it, we'll create our own internal service and we'll cobble it all together and it'll be great." And so then what happens is you go, "Okay, fine, we got to do it because we got to support our internal teams." But then what happens when you go to the internal team, they now they have to prioritize it. So they're like, mm. okay, we can start this next year when we get through all these other projects. And you're like, well, this is why I wanted to go out to an internal company to begin with because right. this is going to take us nine months. So then they have this nine-month lead time and then maybe they code it in or maybe it gets derailed again or deprioritized and you're maybe without a tool in a year. But then what I think a lot of people miss is operationalizing it fraud Mm -hmm. tool is very difficult. right? And the vendors and solution companies will oftentimes include that as part of their consulting is this is how you use the product. This is how you get the output from the product that tells you exactly what you should do, A, B, C, D. Since the banks or the companies or the merchants, that's not their specialty, building analytical solutions. They don't know how to kind of create the right output and the right things to do. And so then you have maybe scores coming out of this black box model that nobody knows how to use. So it gets rejected by the, by the operations area and doesn't at all suit the purpose. So I think that's the second thing that you get out of that. And then Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of people forget is updates, maintenance, all of that stuff supporting the product is okay. Now the IT team or the engineering team has to support that product when it breaks down and have people 24 seven and,
0: it's just and a lot of times that, you know, that one engineer that built that internal tool leaves in a few years. And then what? I've in seen five, that yeah. happen too often. I will also add to that though. And I, and I know this, but not all third-party tools are are good, or you're not going to get your money's worth either. I mean, I don't know the right term, but unofficially consulted on multiple times in the last few weeks, especially, but months as well. By merchants who are just, I'm so confused because they're all saying the same thing. Which one is better? And I'm so fortunate that I've kind of become this hub or conduit of who do I go to for this and who do I go to for that? And I have to be careful not to, I'm really careful not to include my personal opinion or if I have a personal experience, I may say, hey, full disclosure, we are whatever. But there are some clear cut companies, and, and I've seen this happen too many times not to mention it, where a fraud department finally convinces their company to use budget on a fraud tool, right? They finally have the need. They finally get it in. They pick the wrong one. And then their company doesn't understand that not every fraud tool is the same or or not that they're not the same, right? They're not created equal. So they say, well, we said yes to that fraud tool. So why would you need another one? And it's this one. I mean, I'm thinking of a particular Fortune 50 company that I worked with probably more top 20 a few years ago, who they had the ROI, but the problem is the that tool yeah. actually caused. I mean, yes, it reduced some things, but their fraud chargebacks were still high. And they had a high false positive rate and customer insult rate. And it was really impacting the brand in a negative way. But leadership was we we said yes and this is what happened. So and then now the fraud team's in a position where they have to try to provide a negative ROI for the tool that they recommended in the first place. And then the companies, you know, how can we trust you next? Time? I mean, it becomes this huge issue. And so I think, especially because, I mean, there's a reason why there's so many aggressive salespeople and big incentives, not only to customers, you know, potential prospect customers, but also to people for referral fees. I mean, it turned them down a lot because I just don't believe in them, you know, very much yeah. or often and not for something I don't passionately believe in and would recommend to my mother, but if she was in this industry, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a reason for that because they know that once you're locked in, once you have a merchant locked in, they're not going anywhere. So I, I just felt like I had to mention that part too. I mean, I think it's really, it's equally important when you're building an ROI to also take your time and really do your homework and your research that the tool that you're looking at is the right one
1: yeah do a pilot test do a retro
0: mm-hmm. test do You'll see inter- get references yes. absolutely and get not references. just the ones that the that the yeah. i Good actually job. that's another thing i don't know if i should advertise this or not but that's another thing that i spend some of my time doing introducing merchants to each other that use the same tool and i'm not involved in the conversation i'm just like, oh yep here we go duh, duh, duh. And I'm yeah. working on scaling that because I can be such yeah. a bottleneck and those aren't things I charge for. So, you know, I, I can't always yeah. prioritize them sometimes yeah. they get backburnered, but I'm sure you're in the same boat with auto lenders, et cetera. I mean, it's a little different because Point Predictive is a service provider as well. Yeah, but absolutely. Yeah.
1: We deal with the same thing and it's, it's, we encourage people to talk to each other. We have actually have our own consortium where we get hmm. everybody together. Yeah. Not only to share, regardless of our tools, it's just get to. Put all of them in the room together and say, I love that. talk amongst yourself. There's yeah. no salespeople here. It's you talking. We'll facilitate those conversations. Talk about the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah. Talk about best. Talk about whatever you want. And I think you hmm. need to look at the transparency of a solution vendor. And if you get some nagging feelings that things aren't mm. right, double down on, on what you're checking. Yes. Uh, but oh these gosh, companies yeah. that sprout up out of the blue, that out big stats that you've never heard of and they mm-hmm. don't have customers you can talk to uh,
0: or they say just try, when you ask them about it they just say oh just trust us or oh it's secret sauce they're very uh, high level they don't go detailed yeah i just exactly. had a conversation with a very large retailer two days ago about that He was like i have been so disappointed i kind of dip my toe in the water, and he goes i'll go to these webs and i've heard this too much i need to do a whole episode on this or post or whatever but He'll go to a webinar and he'll either be really interested in what they're talking about or curious about the company. And I have heard this from several companies, not just this guy, but this is most recent. He's like, You as a vendor are supposed to know more than I do. I've only been in this industry for five, six, seven years. I expect you to know more about this topic. I go to this webinar, it's all stuff that I learned my first year. And I, And I come to realize that that's to you, like you think you're being a thought leader and you're really high up and you know everything. He also said the people who really go heavy into sales and I'm with you on that, right? If if their core competency seems more about sales And they don't even really know the competition to know what makes their company different. Or they're leaning on the big names, right? They're naming, they're leaning on these big merchant names that may have signed a contract 10 years ago and can't get out of it. It doesn't mean they like it, right? It doesn't mean it's good. (laughs) Who's the company that went
1: out of business for fraud? And I I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. they be going on their LinkedIn profile of uh, people. I mean, I did mm. this one at kept, and I was like, I'd never heard of them and millions mm-hmm. of dollars. And I went and looked at who was working there. Mm. And yeah, I would, as, I was expecting a makeup of a software company, which would be at least yeah. half engineers and mm. et cetera, but it was 95% business development yes. and sales. And it was like, who's building this product here?
0: It, that is such a good point. And it's one that one of my favorite smartest merchants made on a merchant call that I facilitated a month or two ago, when people were asking, how do we know which ones to trust? And that was a tip that she used was go on LinkedIn, look at their percentage of people. Do they have more developers and engineers on their product than they do sales people or is it vice versa? Yeah. Where are they prioritizing, especially when they get a large investment of VC money, when they add all these new positions, where are they putting them? Another thing that, I mean, we could talk about NSA for forever, but one other thing what that was interesting. And I know there are several people that worked there that have gotten into fraud and really fell in love with it and are still in the industry. But I think that a lot of them would agree that the majority of the ones at least I knew had never been in the industry before. And so they didn't know what questions they to ask. They didn't know it was normal and not normal. And I think that was very intentional on the hiring strategy but they were people from healthcare sales or people from mortgage sales or you know real estate or whatever it was and so they thought that was normal you know they didn't have anything to compare it to yeah but they so were fun. sure quick to tell every merchant that they spoke to that it was the greatest product in the world or that they could build it and i have heard some serious horror stories from merchants that were on calls with some of their salespeople. So these are all things I think I said on the podcast. I think I titled it a fraud among us. I don't know. It was last year when it all came out. If people are interested, I kind of did that. I was getting a lot of off the record texts and yeah, yeah, it was. It's also frustrating to me that that guy was able to go to a very widely known fraud conference and pay an, you know a certain amount to get a booth. And then he was able to scan all these cards. And that's what he used to get his funding was look at all these companies I'm speaking to. It oh, was just big brands okay. that attended this conference. And I think that it raises the issue and I'm not trying to point fingers at just this conference because they are not the only ones that do this. Just because a check clears from a vendor, are they the right one to represent your conference in the Expo mm-hmm. Hall booth? And I'm just posing a question. Yeah. There's other ones that too that have, I mean, yeah. maybe not that outright fraud, but yeah. they have definitely yeah. exploited that opportunity. Yeah. Well, so there's billions
1: of yeah. uh, billions of dollars in investment going into fraud. It's hot. <sighs> so you're going to get the the fakers and mm-hmm. pretending like they're they're real to get some of that money and fake it till you make it. They're hoping they can build a product.
0: Yeah, they're hoping they can make the it, but. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many games that go on behind the scenes that I'm sure you know as well that I've been privy to with Mm -hmm. that whole climb up the ladder. There was a, there was a company over the last several months that I heard rumblings from some of their biggest clients that they were getting pushed to sign very long contracts very quickly. And there were Mm -hmm. multiple of them. And then less than a month later, after those contracts were all closed, they either went IPO or were acquired. I'm not going to say which one because people will narrow it down and try to figure it out. But I saw that writing on the wall and then I'm like, well, gosh, is it inside? I mean, not that either way, they didn't have stock on the market at the time. And I don't invest for this reason because I feel like it's always, I don't invest in specific companies because I feel like it'd be insider trading sometimes, but I'm like, gosh, if they were on the market or if their parent company was on the market at the time, I could invest that knowing what's about to happen because they're trying to lock mm. in those big brands for a long time. Right. And those big brands better hope and pray that now that that company is either public or acquired, that they continue to improve on the product.
1: A startup. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah. I mean, how many times have you heard of companies up and coming, just great customer service, fantastic people get acquired.
0: Goodbye. Where are they? Yeah. Who's there? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. That happens a lot. And I think a lot of companies that do the acquisitions need to be putting in clauses to keep the talent. And too often, keep investing. They're not. Yeah. Yeah. Too often, they're not. They're just taken for granted. And as soon as those guys get, you know, the little, sometimes a lot in their bank account, they just take off. And I hear it from their users all the time. I'm sure you do too. Well, yeah. Now that they made all that money, our, yeah there's actually one particular merchant that's quite large that really wants to come on the podcast and talk about that soon mm-hmm. about the impact of financing on the merchant on the end user and you know is it good or bad is VC better than getting acquired is you know public better than this what are the end users but they want to speak with another merchant. They don't want it to just be them. And I've been having a really hard time getting another merchant to talk about that. So I'm just going to throw that out there if there's somebody who's yeah. an end user they like certainly can join Give that experience, He that. and I, right? I think that would be such a worthy conversation. I hear it all the time, but it's getting people who can talk about it on the record. It's kind of challenging. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Frank, I want to make sure that you get the chance to enjoy the rest of your day with your family. I really appreciate you taking the time, yeah, out of your schedule to chat about this.
1: And I forgot to mention, congrats on getting in the Wall Street Journal. Talk about (sighs) refund fraud and your fight to get that recognized as a legitimate fraud issue. That's Wall Street Journal doesn't publish things that they do a Mm. lot of research, and I think that's just kind of a corroboration that you are on to something with this refund fraud that needs to get addressed. And hopefully, you know, we'll make some inroads on that because I do see just, this isn't my industry. I've no vested interest at all in this. I just going on telegram, Mm. I see what, what's hot. What are they all talking about? And this is the number one thing. And it, drives me crazy because I'm why are these people are making millions of dollars on the backs of these brands. They don't deserve it. I don't want them to make oh I'm products.
0: so with you. It's infuriating. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. I know last year I kind of struggled a little bit with do I pull the fire alarm? Is this going to be the thing? But it, it sure seemed right. And so I was yeah, well, if sure I go down and like, this doesn't go anywhere, okay. But I didn't intentionally try to go on. You know, she just attended a session. The journalists attended a session I did. And then she reached out. And I I did provide her with a lot of information because Mm -hmm. I felt that might give us some validation. And I actually encouraged a lot of retailers, share this with your executive team and say, see, Mm -hmm. this really is happening to us. And actually I've heard from several well-known brands that they did that and it has helped the ROI discussion. It's at least gotten them approved for, you know, the... $575 Five hundred and seventy-five dollars workshop that I'm doing, so that's a start, right? I mean, that's not yeah, yeah.
1: that's not the ROI
0: so. for a technology fix, but I think the ROI and just understanding the problem and understanding how to measure it within your yeah. company, I hope, yeah. will help to then talk about technology. But yeah, yeah I think optimizing it is the first step. So uh. yeah, there were three
1: there were three frauds last year. These are the top three frauds yep. of the year. There was PPP fraud. Yep. Unemployment fraud. Yep. And refund fraud. Mm -hmm. There's been 1,000... I don't know the number. I'm going to make it up. 8,950... media articles on PPP fraud, 14,790 on unemployment fraud and one. one
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, to be fair, I've written a couple in cardnotpresent.com and there's been a, I think there was one in loss Mm -hmm. prevention Uh, magazine,
1: but mainstream
0: media. Yes. No, I'm 100% with you on that. And here's the other thing. Unemployment fraud. We were talking about this before we recorded unemployment fraud and PPP fraud are ending. Those, those opportunities as the vaccine and everything else goes through and our country changes, those opportunities are going away for fraudsters and a lot of the same skills and tools that you, that they have used for unemployment and PPP translate right into refund fraud and the margins for them are so much higher than card fraud. I mean, you see them probably too on Telegram, carding's dead or it's not even worth it. And that's because we've done a good job in fraud technology, but it's also frustrating to me to see these some of these fraud companies trying to replicate what has worked for credit card fraud to refund. For, and it's just not, it's not difference. the same. Yeah, I am working with one, I've got one more step in the process of joining the advisory board of an, a technology that's not a startup, but they're adapting it. It's more on the retail side, but they've got the technology and capability mm-hmm. for omni-channel and e-commerce that nice. I'm... I, I'm encouraged and excited about being a part of and advising. I think that's the kind of approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You and I will talk about more offline, but I've definitely talked to several. There have been several, especially since that article came out internationally that have reached out to me. And I think this is the best one so far (laughs) other than using an anonymous network like Identic for a consortium piece, which I do think that's an important part of the puzzle, but that's going to be figured out. And- they've adjusted for that and they will adjust for that, but I think it's going to take more than just one layer of approach, just like it does for fraud, right? You need verification and authentication and you need transactional analysis and blah, blah, blah. So
1: no silver bullet for sure. There
0: is not, but Frank, thank you so much again for joining me. I obviously, you and I could talk forever, but I know people really enjoy hearing us kind of have a meeting of the minds. You've got a lot of great fans and I'm you know grateful to have a few myself. And so hopefully they enjoy this. And I would love to talk offline about Doing this in some kind of regular cadence because, gosh, there's at least three or four other topics we didn't talk about today. (laughs) And there will be more in a few weeks. So, (laughs)
1: yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll be there when you're ready. I'm going to do it.
0: Well, you are the absolute best. Thank you so much, Frank McKenna, for your time and just your wisdom. And talk to you soon.